Amen. Thank you, Aaron and Aaron. Did you bring that out when you get a chance? Thanks. If you don't know Aaron and Allison Legrone, the Aaron on this side, uh, they help lead our midweek service along with Aaron Duncan on this side on Wednesday nights and uh, have been good friends of mine for a long time and um, just humble servants of the Lord like Aaron Duncan and Lauren and Randy and Nate. Uh, just appreciate all, thank you, that's perfect. Appreciate all these uh, wonderful musicians helping us uh, understand what Holy Week is all about. Here we are in the most important week in the life of the church, the most significant week after which nothing would ever be the same again. You know, it was a time of great unease. It was a time of unrest. It was a time of uncertainty. Jesus knew it was coming. His whole life had been building to this moment. Several months before this, Jesus and his disciples were busy ministering in Galilee, several hundred miles north of Jerusalem. And they were healing the sick and the blind and the lame. They were teaching words of life and ministering to the needs of those around them. But his time had come. There's a turning point in his ministry where he realizes it's time to go to Jerusalem for the final journey. In Luke 9:51, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, it says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to celebrate the Passover. That was why the majority of people were gathered in Jerusalem. He was going to die. He was going to be offered up as the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he was determined to fulfill that mission that the Father had given to him. So he set his face to go to fulfill that mission. Jesus had his eye on the prize. But this prize isn't what we normally think of as a prize. You know, this prize was one that would involve betrayal by one of his own. It would involve an inordinate amount of pain and suffering. If you haven't seen the, the video that Jeff Herring did for us last year, we're going to repost it tomorrow on our website and on our social media where a, a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, explains what happened to Jesus' body on the cross. Don't watch it if you're going to be eating a meal shortly thereafter. This journey, this prize that he was going to receive at the end of this journey was an agonizing death. How could that be a good prize? Why do we call tomorrow Good Friday? You know, Isaiah, our four-year-old, brought home some prizes from preschool here at Woodmont Weekday Preschool. And he had, you know, a bouncy ball in his Easter egg that he found outside at the Easter egg hunt. And he was so excited and he was dropping it all over the house. A bouncy ball is a good prize. Why was Jesus' death the prize well, Jesus was playing the lead role in God's unfolding drama of salvation. He was approaching the climax of the story, the point where everything changed, where there, there would never be the same again, where there was no going back after this point. We call tomorrow Good Friday because the good prize that awaited Jesus 
outside the city walls in Jerusalem was nothing less than the overturning of all the forces of evil and sin and death forever. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 encourages us to think of the cross in these terms. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. How many of you feel weight tonight? Every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. The cross was something he endured, the text says. But Jesus knew something greater was happening. His joy came from what the cross secured. Rachel pointed out in a staff meeting recently, I think she may be with the kids. Is she in here? There she is in the back. Rachel pointed out something she'd heard Christine Kane say recently, that Jesus' joy for which he endured the cross was us. We are the joy of Jesus. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you, me, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' joy is found in bringing us near to him. That makes him joyful. And for that joy, he gladly endured the cross. That's how much he loves us, and that's how much he longs to bring us near. So in order to help us understand what this sacrificial death would mean on, on the night before that crucifixion and that death, Jesus would celebrate a meal with his beloved disciples that would be remembered and, and redone, reenacted over and over again throughout the millennia ever since then by millions and billions of Christians all over the world. The tension in Jerusalem, again, it was at an all-time high. The city was crowded with pilgrims who'd come up for the festival of Passover. And the, the, the big rumor on everybody's minds and everybody's talk was, would Jesus show up? Would this homeless, self-taught, explosive teaching rabbi, would he show up? And here he comes riding, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And the crowds run out. He's here. He came. Hosanna, this is it. God save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's going to save us. But the people of the city began to circulate all kinds of rumors again about him. And just a few days after he had arrived in triumph, that same crowd would soon be yelling, crucify, crucify. Public opinion had quickly turned on him. On Monday, his first day in Jerusalem, he comes roaring into the temple to drive out all the thieves and the cheaters and the, the, the money exchangers who'd been taking advantage of God's people who had come there for the purpose of worship. 
On Tuesday, he went up to the Mount of Olives and said that that beautiful temple of which the Jewish nation was so proud of that King Herod, Herod the Builder, had built for them would soon be destroyed, as one day would all the earth be destroyed. Again, these aren't things that you say if you're running for office, right? These are not popularity uh, contest winners. On Wednesday, he continued to teach things in the temple courts that no other rabbi had ever said before. And now the time had come. One of my favorite Andrew Peterson songs says, you knew I was going to quote him, Brad. Had to. On Thursday, you said, it is time. I drink this cup because it is mine. And on Thursday, Lord, on Friday, Lord, you poured the wine. Here at the Last Supper, before his death, Jesus reveals his heart for his beloved, for his future followers, for the world. It's an intimate time, a time of communion with God and with one another around a special meal of remembrance. We're going to see a few things about Jesus's heart here that I don't want us to miss from John chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, open to John 13. It's the beginning of what is known as the farewell discourse. Before he instructs with words, however, Jesus instructs us with an action. Look at John 13 verses 1 to 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The first thing that Jesus does here in the upper room as they gather around this table to eat is to take off his robe and to take up a towel and to go around the room to each and every one of his disciples, including the one who would very soon betray him with a kiss for 30 pieces of gold and wash their dirty feet. This is more than, than ritual preparation for a meal. Something deeper is happening. It's a powerful example that shows us something about Jesus' own heart. So the first thing that we see, we're going to talk about five things that we see about Jesus' heart. The first one about Jesus' heart is that his heart is one of humble service. Jesus' heart is one of humble service. It's a powerful thing to know that Jesus' heart is one of humble service. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The rightful king of the world, the one by which all things were made and for which all things were made, came not to be served as a king, but instead to humble himself and to serve others. 
And that's the thing we talked about on Sunday. The power of the gospel isn't found in its ability to oppress or suppress or to overthrow. It's not in its ability to force its will or its way on others and make them do what it wants them to do. The power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is found in its ability to subvert and to turn everything upside down. It works from the inside out, from the bottom up, by changing and transforming what is broken in us and in the world around us by a kind of logic that defies all worldly wisdom. By serving, Jesus leads. By humbling himself, Jesus is exalted. By dying, Jesus wins. Philippians 2 Verses five through eight encourages us to reflect on this aspect of Christ's own heart. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he still humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But again, something deeper is going on here. Not, not only is Jesus giving us a perfect example of service and humility, not only is he washing the dirt off the disciples' feet, he's also washing the dirt off their hearts as well. Look at John chapter 13, verses 6 through 11. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. <laughs> I love Peter. I'm so much like him. <laughs> in, the, in the dumb stuff that he does. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, dear Peter, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's what, that's what, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. The second aspect of Jesus' heart, then, is to purify us from our sins. He longs to cleanse us, to make us holy as he is holy, to conform us to his perfect image. Washing the feet of his disciples is just a foreshadow of the cleansing that would soon come through his atoning death on a cross. Just as the, the grit and the, the grime was washed off of the feet of his disciples, so would their hearts soon be cleansed from the stain of sin. We just sang that beautiful hymn. It's from the 1700s. It's a new one uh, by William Cowper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
lose all their guilty stains. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Redeeming love shall be my theme and shall be till I die. The third thing that we learn of Jesus' heart here is that he longs for us to be like him. That's why he longs to purify us, because he longs for us to be like him. Look at verses 12 to 17. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, if Jesus, very God of God, as the old creeds say, our master, our Lord, to whom we have confessed that we owe everything. When we baptize here, we, we do it under the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of their hearts and of their lives, of their service, everything. If he then would get down on his knees and wash feet, then who are we to refuse to serve one another in such a fashion? How much more ought we ought to serve the least of these? And I know a lot of people don't like feet, and if that sounds gross to you, just imagine if the, the idea of serving others is, is unattractive to you. If the idea of humbling yourself and taking off your fine outer garments in order to get in the grit and the grime of people's lives, if that bugs you, if that offends you, if that sounds gross to you, then look at verse 17 again. Look at verse 17. It says, if you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. The word for blessed is the same word used in the Beatitudes. It means happy. It means to, to really flourish and thrive. What if in getting ourselves out of the way and focusing on serving others, on living for others, on putting others first, what if when we do that, we actually prosper and live happier and better lives. What if in his love for us, Jesus wants us to thrive by embracing the gospel power of service and humility because he knows that in losing our lives, we actually find them. The fourth thing that we see about Jesus' heart here is that he shows us how amazing God is. Look at verses 31 and 32. <clears throat> when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That's confusing maybe as a sentence. But what Jesus is saying here is that it's time to reveal God's greatness. 
that glorifying God, that time to glorify God has come to show how awesome and how mighty and how holy and how perfect God is through Jesus' humble obedience, through his sacrificial replacement atoning death, and, and most of all on Sunday through his powerful resurrection, the glory of God is going to be on full display. Jesus is talking in cosmic terms here, universal terms. God's good rescue plan that he had in mind since, the, since before the creation of the world. His plan to put back together all that was broken by the fall of creation comes to a climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that climax, we see the, the tide of sin and evil about to be reversed once and for all. So then in that climax, we see, therefore, how amazing our God is. We see that he forged this perfect way to, to make things right without compromising his own perfect holiness and integrity. He found a way for his perfect justice and his perfect love to kiss at the cross. Nowhere else do we behold that plan so clearly on display than in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's completely counterintuitive, right? The cross was a shameful way for thieves to die, for murderers to die. It was a way for Romans to, to put a, an example up for the rest of the world. Don't do this or you're going to end up like those guys. But that's how the gospel works. As D.A. Carson puts it, the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. And that leads us to the final aspect that we see of Jesus' heart on display here, the one that's revealed by the mandatum novum, by the new commandment. Look at verses 33 to 35. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This commandment is, is so much more than Jesus saying, hey, you guys get along. Y'all be nice to each other. It's so much deeper than that. Because loving others is not a new thing, right? We know that Jesus already said that the great commandments from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures, were to love God and love your neighbor, right? Leviticus 19.8 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So the new thing about this commandment that Jesus gives here is that it shows his heart in which to create a new family, a new people for himself. After cleansing his followers, Jesus now gives them these final instructions on how to exist in the world after his death and resurrection and ascension as this new covenant community. 
the truth is this little ragtag group of Hebrew school dropouts would soon take these words and through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit who shows up in an amazing way would establish a new community of brothers and sisters that to this day numbers over 2 billion people on this planet at this time. This special family would become to be known as the church. And while they would mess up often throughout history, we, our history book about Woodmont is in the library and it talks a lot about our mistakes that we've made. And we're going to make more because we're humans. If you find a perfect church, let me know. I'd love to go there. We are, as the church, are not the perfect uh, church yet. We will be one day. But we still continue to serve as a conduit of God's blessing to the world as the functioning body of Christ. We are not just an organization, as a friend recently said to me. We are an organism, the living and active body of Christ in the world. And the defining characteristic of the church ought to be our love for one another. The church loves one another because through the cross, we have become closer than blood relatives. We share the same spirit inside of us and we've all died to our old selves and we've been raised into a whole new kind of humanity. And the standard of our love for one another, the bar that was set is not based on self-love, love your neighbor as yourself, right? The bar has been totally raised. We ought to love one another. How? As Jesus has loved us. We've seen into the very heart of Jesus tonight. We know how he loved us. He loved us enough to become obedient unto the point of death, even death on a cross, despising the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy that includes you and me. Let us therefore recommit our lives tonight Go back to those five points, Gabe. Will we go back to committing ourselves to a life of humble service, joyfully pouring out ourselves for others? Maybe you find yourself tonight burdened by sin and guilt and shame, and you need to let Jesus wash those guilty stains away again. Maybe some of us have been so shaped by the world around us that we're actually more a product of our zip code rather than a product of following Jesus. It's time for us to become more conformed to Jesus's example through deep discipleship and devotion. Perhaps others in here just need to be reminded or need to have your heart awakened for the first time to how amazing God is just to the greatness of God's glory and beauty. When was the last time you found yourself in worship, just stirred by the Holy Spirit and just so longing to be near to the heart of the Lord? If that hasn't happened for you in a while, maybe you need to be awakened to the reality of the glory of God. Maybe you've lost sight of the grandeur of the gospel truth that says God is more good and more holy and more perfect and more beautiful than anything else this world could possibly ever offer. And we've all fallen short of loving each other as Christ has loved us. 
as the body of Christ. Our church, the church, will never thrive unless we learn to live into the reality of our new family. No family's perfect. I learned from a pastoral counselor that every family has its issues, and neither is this one. We're not perfect either, but it is the body of Christ. And we have work to do, serious work. Will you play your part in what God has for the body of Christ as we lean into the heart of Jesus himself? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. <clears throat> we thank you for your word. We thank you that that night in the upper room was recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. God, we thank you that you opened your heart not only to your disciples that night in the upper room, but you opened it to us as well, inviting us into this intimate communion with you. God, we know how far short we fall of the standard that you've set for us. We know that our hearts are not the same as Jesus' heart, but through the Holy Spirit, you're making them that way. Slowly, you are conforming our hearts to Jesus' own heart. God, I pray that as we lean into these next couple days, that we would understand what it means to be a part of your body that we as Woodmont Baptist Church, we as the church universal around the world throughout time and space, would faithfully play our part in the work that you have for us. God, we thank you that you did not just abandon us here to our own sins and, and left us to deal with it on our own and try to be good enough and follow the laws well enough. But instead you sent rescue. You sent your only son to die a perfect atoning death, our sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. God, I pray that we would understand this meal and what it represents as we partake in the bread of life and the blood of the new covenant, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. May we understand, may we remember what you've done for us. May we proclaim that you, yes, you've died, but you also rose and you are coming again. And until that day, we continue to celebrate this meal just as you instituted on that first Maundy Thursday. Lord, we pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.